Good morning. Welcome to Liberty Bible Church. Happy 4th of July weekend. Really glad that you're here. If this is your first time coming or first few times, really excited that you're here. Uh, we know that it's not always easy to step into a church for the first time. So uh, welcome. Would encourage you after the service uh, to head out near the donuts, grab a first or a second or a third donut and stop by the Welcome Center. We'd love to be able to meet you and give you a gift. If you're a regular attender, it's always good to see you here. A uh, reminder to fill out your connection card and specifically place around prayer. Together as a staff and elders, we get to pray through those uh, things that are happening in your own life, in your community, that you uh, want to see God work. Uh, as we believe that prayer changes things in the heavenly realm. Uh, we see that, uh, one visible example today, where you'll notice three roses. Uh, on the first Sunday of each month, we get to celebrate God's work from those that have gone from death to life, that have made first-time commitments to follow Christ, to place their faith in him. And so that is through the ministry of Liberty Bible Church, through ministries and through the people, that this month we get to celebrate three new followers of Jesus, which is very cool. Yes, I agree. And it's a reminder for us that as we get to gather together as one here in worship, that it shouldn't stay here, that God has placed us in neighborhoods and in jobs and throughout our life with people that are not yet gathered, that do not know Jesus. And so for the next few moments, uh, we want to give time to be able to, one, celebrate God's work for those three, but also to pray. Pray for those not yet gathered. We encourage you right now as you think what name comes to mind, believing that the Spirit can prompt you to pray for a specific person, that collectively together today we pray for those not yet gathered. So for the next moments, pray for that person. Pray for opportunities to share and be the hope of Jesus to them as the Spirit leads in the coming weeks, and then I will uh, bring us back together in the time of prayer. So take these moments to pray. Father, we are grateful for the hope of Jesus today. Uh, we're reminded that you are 
a good God who is always working and always moving. And we celebrate three lives that are forever changed because of the hope of Jesus. God, we're reminded as we come together, as you do a work in us, that it spills out, it overflows to those around us. What a gift it is to be able to lift up hundreds of names of people that you've placed in our lives that don't know Christ. God, may we follow your spirit as you direct to be able to be the good news and to share the good news with them as your spirit leads. We pray for fruit, for your kingdom to advance. And God, pray today as we continue in worship that your name would be lifted high and that our hearts would be turned towards you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand if you're able as we continue to worship. Please stand if you're able as we continue to worship.
Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our uh, scripture this morning comes from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. So hear now the word of the Lord. Uh, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sore, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, no. Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And this is God's word. You may be seated. Well, freedom is what we celebrate this weekend, what the 4th of July is all about. Freedom from the British government that tried to tax us without representation. I don't remember many things from my elementary education, but I remember this phrase, taxation without representation. That's pretty good. You can start a country with a phrase like that. Uh, The colonies were so fed up, they gathered in Griffin's Wharf to throw the Boston Tea Party, dumping tea into the ocean to declare their freedom, which really is the perfect act of rebellion. You don't want to dump valuable things into the harbor, so tea, which is disgusting, (laughs) and no one likes anyway, is the perfect thing to throw into the ocean. No chance coffee is getting thrown into the ocean. Uh, freedom, it's the American way. And freedom has been at the heart of this series on sin, which we end this morning. And if you noticed uh, on that slide, the subtitle to the series has been How an Idea We Don't Like Will Set Us Free. The assumption of this series has been that if, if, if you believe in sin, you're doing what those American revolutionaries did in Boston Harbor. You're declaring your freedom. To believe in sin sets you free. The question becomes, from what? If you believe in sin, what are you set free from? 
And there's a lot of ways we could answer that question, but the heart of Luke 16 invites us to consider this. To believe in sin will set you free from yourself. A life of sin, self-centeredness, chasing what you want, what you desire, a life of becoming your best self without God is a constricting and small life. And a life like that leads not to freedom. A life of self-centeredness leads to hell. And so this morning is a meditation on hell. And I know, I just totally buzzkilled July 4th for you. But before you give up on me, I'm confident this is not the sermon you think that it is. So I want to start here. Uh, two objections, two common objections on the idea of, of hell. The first one being, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? Uh, in 2020, New York Times columnist and editor Elizabeth Brunig treated out the following. There's just something unsustainable about an environment that demands constant atonement, but actively disdains the very idea of forgiveness. She's pointing out something a lot of people in our culture are noticing, which is we appear to be souring on the idea of forgiveness. And to prove the truth of her observation, her tweet went viral, and people was, were angry with her for defending forgiveness. She was inundated with people telling her that she's siding with abusers. She's siding with evil people for suggesting the possibility of forgiveness. So she deleted that tweet and later reflected on the whole episode by saying this. I see in American culture how offended people seem to be by the very idea of forgiveness itself. They seem to find it immoral and I think that is very disturbing. A significant portion of our culture finds forgiveness immoral. And in some ways it's understandable. What do you do with people who have done great harm? Either to you or to this world. What do we do with those who have abused others? Those who have harmed others? Those who have introduced injustice into the world. So to illustrate the way our culture is wrestling with this, author Sabine Birdsong reflected on, on these questions in a blog post she wrote, asking, what do you do with abusers? What do you do with men who perpetrated the Me Too movement? And her answer is, it can't be forgiveness. And so she takes a hostile view of Christianity and its possibility of redemption and forgiveness. And she urges us, we must rewrite the outdated narratives of forgiveness. Because they idealize pseudo-spiritual fairy tales of redemption and forgiveness that order the inherent right for people not to be abused. Her point, if you believe in forgiveness, you're excusing abuse. You're excusing wrongdoers. And so I resonate with a lot of what she's saying. Are we supposed to pretend like people haven't done evil? What do we do with abusers, perpetuators of violence? Do they just get away with it with no judgment, no restitution? And that's what we have here in Luke 16. A wealthy man who lives not caring at all for the people around him 
who has plenty of excess to share, plenty of social capital to help a poor man who lives at his gates, but he doesn't care. And Sabine, who would reject Christianity, would say, shouldn't something be done about people like that? And Jesus says, yes. It's called hell. And so what's interesting to me is in a culture that struggles with forgiveness, but also struggles with hell, how do you, how do you fit those two things together? As we have abandoned the idea of hell, we're abandoning the idea of forgiveness. That seems like a not great path to go, a culture without forgiveness. And I think Luke 16 offers a better way. But before we get to it, there's a second objection. I just want to name that you're probably feeling, which is, second, why would God not want me to be free to do whatever would make me happy? Isn't it creepy or weird that God's up in heaven judging me and my choices? Doesn't God just want me to be happy? Well, ancient people thought about this very different than us. Their assumption was there's a moral order to the universe, and if you break that order, there are consequences. And so you don't find ancient cultures, or even most cultures through history, struggling with the idea of a judgment or of a hell. Because their assumption was if you break the universe and its order, you have to, you'll pay. You'll pay for it. It's just like us. It's totally true. Taxation without representation is wrong. That's ingrained into us as Americans. So ancient people thought you can't just live however you want and not expect the gods to respond to you. But we now have a totally different view of freedom. And our view of freedom is, is described well by Tim Keller in The Reason for God, where he says our assumption is instead of trying to shape our desires to fit reality, we now seek to control and shape reality to fit our desires. The world must conform to what I want to be and what I desire it to be, whether or not that's reality. And so the idea that there would be a God who would say, you cannot live that way. You're not free to live that way. There are consequences if you go down that path. It makes no sense to us. Our belief in personal rights and freedom are so strong, we have no imagination for a judgment day and just find it creepy that God would even think of judging what we would try to do to make ourselves happy. But it's clear, Jesus thinks very differently than us on this. Luke 16 shows us the life of a man with total freedom to do whatever he wanted to make himself happy. Didn't care what God thought, didn't care what other people thought. And Jesus says that kind of life is a tormented life. And it leads to, to hell. So, how can we believe in the love of God and take what Jesus is saying seriously here? How can we believe in, in freedom and that God's not this weird being always judging us from heaven? Well, in, in this parable... I think Jesus is saying something powerful to us about our lives and about the love of God and what will actually set you free into a free life. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time there meditating on the love of God and hell and your freedom and hell. So first, the, the love of God and hell. At, at the very least, it should be obvious to us that the question, how can there be a loving God and hell, was not a problem for Jesus. Because on the one hand, Jesus has no tension talking about teaching on 
hell, that he describes the rich man as living in torment, verse 23, is experiencing the anguish of a flame in verse 24. So Jesus does not shy away at all from a doctrine our culture finds reprehensible. In fact, Jesus speaks, speaks about and teaches on hell more than any person in the Scriptures. Which means if you want to follow him, if you want to taste his salvation, if you want to be his disciple, you have to come to grips with why he taught like this. What is he trying to say to us? And yet, while teaching on Hill, I would also say Jesus gives an incredible vision of the love of God in this passage. Lazarus, a poor man, dies. And then we're told he is carried to the angels by Abraham's side. Now half of this is very normal. Poor people, homeless, vulnerable, die all the time. And we have someone in our church who, whose vocation is he serves the homeless population in Chicago as their pastor. And a few weeks ago, one night, um, one of his regulars who comes in every night to sleep at the shelter didn't show up. A second night passed, a third night passed. Still not there. Finally, a couple of other regulars came up to him and said, Hey, we're concerned. This guy's not here. Where is he? What, what happened? We're, we're concerned for him. So they go out looking for him. And, and sure enough, a couple, from the blocks, a couple blocks from the shelter, lying on a, an abandoned couch, was the, this poor homeless man, dead. And he'd been dead for a few days, dying alone. It was heartbreaking. And that's what we have here in Luke 16. A poor, homeless man dying alone. No one caring for him. But then we get the image of what happens on the other side of death. Which is that angels carry him to the side of Abraham. Where Abraham, the father of the Old Testament, personally cares for the poor man. This is a pretty shocking move. Or at least it should be to us. Because in that culture, first century Roman culture, the poor were not important in life or in death. In fact, Aristotle, who's considered one of the most brilliant human beings ever, described the poor and slaves as human tools. With no dignity, they're just meant to serve the rich as tools. And yet here's Jesus describing God as a father deeply connected to a poor forgotten man as one who so loves the poor, he personally commissions angels to go and lift the poor man from this earth into his heavenly existence into an eternity of joy. So whatever we think of God and hell, we have to take that into account. And I would just ask you, have you ever personally seen to it that a person in grave poverty is personally carried to safety by you? Have you ever seen someone along the side of the road sleeping on the streets of Chicago and you personally ensured through your own personal resources that they got to a place of comfort and safety? Because that is who God is described as here. And so if you struggle with the idea of hell and a God of love, I would just say if you haven't yet cared for the poor in this way, you probably can't yet judge God if hell exists, which I believe it does. I mean, we're describing a God of incredible love here. Care for the poor. Personally caring a poor, forgotten, dead, homeless, vulnerable man into eternity by his angels. 
Uh, but you say, there's another guy in the passage, the rich guy. What about him? Why doesn't God help him? Uh, well, let's go there. Second, uh, your, your freedom, your freedom in hell. Uh, now, I turned 40 about a month ago, which means I'm currently debating uh, what I should do about my midlife crisis. Do I buy a motorcycle? Do I go skydiving? Do I shave my beard off, really freak people out? Who knows? Currently taking, uh, taking options. Uh, but, but in turning 40, something, something else happened. There, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis that I probably first read in my early 20s that has always resonated with me. But now, 20 years after encountering that, encountering that quote, I feel the weight and truth of what he said. It's his meditation a bit on, on hell. And here's what Lewis wrote. <clears throat> Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you part of you that chooses into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God, with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God with its fellow creature and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing into one state or the other. I feel the truth of that more at 40 than I did in my early 20s. The older you get, the more solid and firm you become through the choices that you make. And each passing year solidifies you more into a certain type of person. And the more we choose sin, the more loneliness and madness is introduced into our life. The more we're at disharmony with the people around us. The more I pursue God, the more joy and knowledge. And I, that is more true today than I first read it 18 years ago. And so to go back to the objection I spoke earlier, why wouldn't God want me to be free to choose what would make me happy? Isn't it creepy that he's up there judging my choices? We have to point out that's actually not what's happening in this story. God is not depicted as up in heaven and angrily and, and meticulously judging all of the rich man's choices. Instead, the rich man's depicted as perfectly free to pursue whatever he wants. And Jesus just tells us in Luke 16, this is what that looks like over a long period of time. He's got total freedom to do whatever he wants, no limitations, which many of us think is the good life. To have the resources to do whatever I want. Well, let's, this is what it looks like, Jesus says. That he has total freedom to wear whatever he wants. That we're told he is clothed in purple and fine linen. This is the best clothing that money could buy. Purple dye was expensive. So to wear purple was to, to flaunt your wealth. He's certainly much, uh, dressed much better than Lazarus, who we're not told what he wears, only that he is covered in sores. 
The rich man has total freedom to eat whatever he wants. We're told he feasted sumptuously every day. And the word here shows up only elsewhere in the parable of the prodigal son, where in that story, the son's father throws a once-in-a-lifetime feast to celebrate the return of his lost son. So this rich man in Luke 16 eats a once-in-a-lifetime feast every day. Total freedom to celebrate however he wants, which is certainly better than Lazarus, who actually doesn't eat anything at all in the story. Instead, the dogs come and lick him, which I used to read as like they were caring for him. That's not what's happening. By licking his sores, the, this is graphic, but the dogs were eating him. So the rich man is feasting sumptuously, cares nothing for the poor man who actually his dogs go and eat him rather than him getting scraps from the rich man's table. The point, the rich man is at the center of his universe. So enraptured in himself, he cares nothing for the man living at his gates. But here's what I find most interesting about Luke 16. The rich man's freedom does not end when he dies. Jesus does not depict God as intervening and saying, you lived it up on, on earth and now I'm going to make you miserable here in hell. That's not the story Jesus tells. In fact, the, the man still has incredible, at least in his mind, has incredible freedom even as he's in torment. We see this when he tells Lazarus what to do from hell. Lazarus is in heaven, the rich man, who apparently still thinks he's the rich man at the center of his universe, tells Abraham and Lazarus what to do. Abraham, send Lazarus down here, I'm thirsty. That's crazy. It's self-deception, it's self-centeredness. But beyond that, uh, when Abraham says, uh, no, we can't, we can't do that, he tries again with something else. Well, Abraham, if you can't do that, then tell him to go to my five brothers and tell them about the place I'm in because it's bad and I don't want them to end up here. Which is sort of a way of, of blaming others for his predicament. He's in hell not because he's greedy, but because God didn't give him a good magic trick to prove that he should avoid hell and live a different way. God didn't do enough for him. Didn't show him someone raised from the dead. Didn't warn him enough. That's why he is where he is. Not taking any responsibility for his choices, only wishing God had done more for him. But more than that, the rich man, he asks for a lot of things. The one thing he never asks is to get out. Can I come to where you are? He asks for a drink of water, for proof to his brothers. He orders Abraham and Lazarus around, but he never wants out. And the reason is because that is the trajectory of a life of freedom pursuing happiness without God. A lifetime of choices with himself at the center of the universe is hell. And that's really important. That the objection of hell rooted in freedom, this, this question, why wouldn't God want me to be free to do whatever will make me happy? Well, you are free to do that. You are free to live a life with yourself at the center, rejecting anyone else, especially God's expectations of how you might use that life. And what Jesus wants you to know is that life is hell. Now and in the future. It's live that way. It's hell for the people around you. To live as if they don't exist. Uh, they, only get, they don't even get the scraps from your table. They don't get to sleep in your house. 
There's a lot of people living this way. They may not have a poor person living outside their gate, but they treat their own children this way or their parents this way or their friends this way as if the other people don't exist in their life. And yet many of us, we could say this and say, I'm not that bad. And yet I would ask, because I would just speak for myself. The only reason I'm not as bad as this rich guy is I don't have enough money to be this bad. Some of us, our sin is only constrained because we're limited in resources. Increase our resources and we will sin even more boldly than we do today. So why the answer to this parable is not, are you better than the rich man? Because you probably just don't have enough money to be as selfish as he is. But all of us, there are moments when we see we're putting ourselves in the center of our world. Showing just as much indifference to the people around us that this man showed to Lazarus. This is what the life, living with yourself at the center, leads to. And it can be uh, hard to be honest with ourselves that this is what we're doing to ourselves. So just for a moment... Think of somebody else like this. Somebody who you know is self-centered and has indulged that over a period of many years. What happens when you, you live as the center of your universe for five years? Probably not as much as what happens when you've done it for 10. What happens in 20 years? They're hard to be around. They're exhausting, sometimes delusional. What happens when you live with yourself at the center of existence for 40 years? For 50? Or what happens if the Bible is right and and you will live forever? What happens 2,000 years from now if you continue to live with yourself at the center of the universe? Jesus is saying this is what it looks like. Luke 16, it's delusional. It's self-centered. It doesn't care about anyone but themselves. No responsibility for, for your own brokenness, your own sin. Lashing out at God and others for your own torment. C.S. Lois describes this reality well. Again, he writes, Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing, which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. God will leave you free to pursue whatever will make you happy. And that life for 2,000 years is what we read in Luke 16. It's hell. So what do, we, what do we do? What do we do with this? What do we do with the doctrine of hell? And, and in many ways, what do we do with the idea of sin, which we've been talking about for several weeks? And so we're going to end uh, the series with, I, I think there's probably more than three options for how you can respond to sin. But I like three. So we're going to go with three. Three ways you can respond to sin. The first is you can reject the idea of sin and pursue an autonomous life. Our culture will tell you for the rest of your days, that is the good life. Self-autonomy. When I choose for myself what is good, not a God, 
Not a scriptures, not uh, a religion, not parents, not family members. No one tells me how to live. I look within at my own heart and I decide for myself what will make me happy. And, and Jesus kind of says through the parable, what, what happens in that sort of life at the end? Where Abraham says to the rich man, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus in manner, like manner, bad things. Now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. What that little phrase is saying is you got what you wanted, self-autonomous life apart from God, and it's led you here to anguish. This is what you wanted. And it's anguish, it's torment, it's hell. Even the image of, of a flame, of, of thirst, of no satisfaction. Right? That is the life of, of pursuing self-autonomy apart from God. It's, it's always almost satisfying, but not quite. And the, the blown-out vision of that is someone who's, whose thirst can't be quenched. That's the life of self-autonomy apart from God. Your thirst is never quenched. You got what you wanted. It's, it's led you here. Living in wealth with indifference to the poor surrounding you. Pursuing outrageous luxury while a man outside your gate suffered. You couldn't even give him scraps from your food. You got what you wanted and it's led you here. And this type of life, right, with myself at the center, self-autonomy, it, it's fundamentally incompatible with the presence of God. Because who is God? Who is God described to us in the scriptures? As, one, as a being who is utterly selfless, who loves his enemies, who forgives his enemies, who dies for people who harm him, who loves people who do not love him. Who uses his wealth, his riches, the goodness of creation to serve and save others. Who gives himself generously. Who himself, Father, Son, and Spirit is fundamentally others-centered. And so if, you're, if your vision of the good life is, I get to pursue what I want and no one can judge me. Where you use your resources for yourself. Where your life is about you. Where you stand at the center of your existence. It's not that God's going to have to consign you to hell in the end anyway. Heaven will, will not be a fun place for you. If you want to live with yourself at the center, heaven will be the most miserable place you could go because it's, it's, it's ruled by an other-centered being. You won't want to be there. And to me, this is why the vision of hell, I, I think actually is taught in the scriptures, is far more terrifying to me than the, the vision of like, you know, hell is this, this place of flame and God's like, you have to go there. And we're like, no, save me. And God's like, no, any, you're going anyway. Like that, that's sort of how it got preached to me growing up. This is far worse because what, what, what Jesus is communicating here is you're going to want hell in the end and you're going to lock the doors from the inside. Stay out, God. 10, 20, 34, a, a lifetime of saying, stay out, God. Heaven makes no sense for eternity if that's your vision of the good life. If you want to be left alone to be free to do what you want, in the end, God will say, yes. Only the surprise twist is that that is hell. The most miserable place you can imagine. But that is the path forward to reject sin and pursue an autonomous life. A second choice is to reject the idea of sin and embrace religion. Right? If you, I'm guessing all of us probably at some level know I'm not good enough to get into heaven. And you know, you need a resume where God can look at you and say, you're good enough to get into heaven. And so some people try to build a resume to be good enough to get into heaven. But that doesn't work for two reasons. One, if you pursue that path, you will end up what the poet T.S. Eliot described 
as the endless struggle to think well of yourself. You'll always be wondering, have I done enough? Is my resume enough? Have I given enough money away to the poor? Have I become a good enough person so that God won't turn me away? It's anxiety and fear and worry to the end. That's, That's one thing that happens to religious people. The other, which is far worse, is you think you will have the resume. That you did it. And you'll become an insufferable religious person. Always looking down on others. Always thinking yourself superior to them. You're one of the good ones. God likes you, which is why you're not going to hell, unlike those other God-forsaken people who are destroying our culture. Maybe you're here this morning and church is not something you're particularly interested in. And then I got up and said I'm going to preach on hell, and you're like, just, just my luck. Fourth of July, unbelievable. Um, but you might feel that way because of the way you've heard religious people talk about hell. That the way they talk about their life, their moral superiority, they know they have the resume, and they make you feel the fact that you don't. But I just want to encourage you, if you spend any time digging past the people of digging past the surface of people who talk like that, it's hell. Just read the Gospels. Those are the people Jesus had the harshest words for. People who believed they were the blessed ones of God. Because ultimately, that's a rejection of the idea of sin. The doctrine of sin, as we have preached it, is not, you're a bad person, so you better get it together. The message of sin is, you need an intervention. The trajectory of your soul, you cannot alter yourself. Someone has to intervene, or it's hell. You can't stop it. So my hope is your response to this series and this sermon will be to embrace the idea of sin and receive the intervention of Jesus. Whenever Jesus tells a story like this, he's often inviting you to consider where do you fit in the story? Who are you? And in Jesus, there are really only two characters you can choose from. The wealthy man who pursues a self-centered, autonomous life Or the poor man, Lazarus, who's helpless, resourceless, and has nothing. So Jesus asks, who are you? And my prayer in this series is that we can be honest. We're we're the poor ones. We don't have the resume. We never will. We're not even interested in building the resume. We can't. As one of our greatest hymns sings, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. A wretch. One of the interesting things about that story was the way it was told to me growing up was it was written by a man named John Newton, who was a sailor and a slave trader. And then God intervened in his life, saved him. And he forsook the slave trade and and, uh, an immoral life, became a Christian, and then wrote Amazing Grace. It's a lovely story. He was a sinner. He got saved. He became a good person and wrote this song. It's not the story. What actually happened was he was at sea, almost died, and became a Christian. And did not forsake the slave trade. 
and wrote Amazing Grace as a slave trader. Treating the poor much like the man in Luke 16 treated the poor. And yet over time, his repentance grew deeper and he forsook the slave trade and became a new type of man. Does that nullify amazing grace that it was written by a man who in that moment was oppressing the poor? Not to me. To me it makes it more authentic, more Christian. Because the good news of John Newton's life and the good news of my life is not that in the past I got a hold of my life, turned it around, changed it forever and became one of the good people. The good news of my life is that every time I discover a new layer to my sin, a new way I'm self-centered, a new way I've deceived myself, a new way I'm trying to live by myself apart from God, what I don't find in Jesus Christ is condemnation, but grace and intervention. And so friends, the Son of God, Jesus himself, has entered into this world to intervene on your behalf. You can't make enough good choices to turn yourself into a heavenly creature. You never will. You can't. You need an intervention. That in the end, there's only one way to deal with sin, and it's, it's a way beautifully described by author David Zoll, who writes, To those who have a hard time loving themselves, who feel acutely their own failings and shortcomings, and whose personal narratives seem impervious to sin, to spin. In other words, those of us who actually have taken a full look at how broken we are, who understand that if, if my sinfulness was a well, and I was to throw a rock down the well, I would still be waiting to hear the rock hit the bottom of my sinfulness. I can't spin my life to make it a good resume before God. That's what, that's what believing sin is. And so to us who are there, the words of Martin Luther might sound a bit more alluring. God receives none but those who are forsaken. Restores to health none but those who are sick. Gives sight to none but the blind and life to none but the dead. He does not give saintliness to any but sinners nor wisdom to any but fools. In short, He has mercy on none but the wretched and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. Jesus has entered into this world to intervene into your life, not to tell you, get it together. It's almost too late. (laughs) No, to say, you're dead, but I can raise you to life. You are blind, but I can help you see. You are a disgrace, which is why I'm full of grace. And so what is our response to sin and to hell? What's the the old word? Repent and trust Jesus. But even that can feel like you better repent well enough. And I'm here to tell you, you can't even repent well enough to earn Jesus' favor. We can't do any of it, which is the good news of why Jesus knows that, which is why he goes to a cross, why he dies for us, why he rises to new life for us, offering his hand in trust to give your life to him so that he can, you can set, he can set you free from yourself. And any other way to try to approach life, whether it's religion or self-autonomy apart from God, it's hell in the end. It leads to no joy, no happiness. That the free life is not when I get to live how I want. It's a life of experiencing the love of God 
who continually takes this poor dead sinner and carries him, carries him to the right hand of the Father. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, whether we know it or to what extent we know it, this room is filled with sinners whose own soul trajectories go to a place of joylessness and torment. Um, And so we, we thank you for the intervention of Jesus. And so now as we prepare to come to the table of Jesus, we recognize we're not, we're not coming resumes in hand. We're coming empty-handed with our hands open to receive the body of Jesus given for us and the blood of Jesus shed for us. What good news. Give us the faith to receive it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are going to move into a time of, of communion now where we come to the table of, of Jesus. So if you're... However imperfect faith is in Jesus, we want you to come to his table and to come with hands open to receive the bread, which represents the body of Jesus given for you, and to dip it into the cup, which is the blood of Jesus shed for you. Uh, If your faith is not yet in Jesus, we'd love to talk to you about what that means to become a Christian. I'll be in the hall after. Email us, call us, whatever you got to do. We'd love to talk to you um, about that. But but use this time now to ask, okay, God, um, save me, intervene. I don't even know if I believe in you, but do it. Intervene. And we are confident Jesus will show up in your life. But if your faith is in Jesus, come to his table now. Come in groups of five to seven. Take the bread, dip it into the juice, eat it together at the instruction of those serving you. Um, And we just invite you into that space now as you're ready. Come to his table.
please stand if you're able. Joy. 
Uh, let us pray. Father, the good life is that we can know and be known by your son Jesus, who gives and gives and gives to us sinners so generously. Uh, so may uh, we live into that, we pray in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. You may be seated. Uh, well, now that we've uh, heard the word preached, sung, uh, we're going to take up offering um, this morning. So if, if this is your church home, uh, please, uh, please do. If this is not your church home, uh, please don't. Uh, this is not um, for you. But uh, um, to give you a sense of, of what uh, your generosity leads to, one of the, the coolest things I've gotten to be a part of since my time here happened uh, uh, in the last few days where uh, we got to do a wedding um, here uh, recently where uh, it began several months ago when I first got here. Uh, the bride uh, showed up at church, kind of to give church one last uh, chance. And through encountering and hearing the gospel here, encountering you guys uh, has been one of the kind of the roses over the last few uh, months. And yet, as uh, I made clear in the sermon, that didn't mean everything became perfect the next moment. Uh, no, through uh, New Hope Counseling, which your generosity helps support, uh, we had an amazing mentor cu- couple uh, lead and shepherd them over the last several uh, months, pouring into them, giving to them. Uh, serving them, and uh, again, not perfection, stories over, but uh, yesterday we got to, to marry them and, and preach the gospel to a room full of people who are very skeptical of church and God and speak the good news of Jesus into their marriage, but also over them and the story God had done and bringing them uh, together. And so we're grateful for your generosity that uh, makes things like Saturday weddings in the fireside room happen. <clears throat> as well as uh, New Hope Counseling, uh, so thank you. And, and one other piece of generosity we practice uh, is our benevolence offering, and so that we do that the first Sunday of the month, which is today. Um, so after service is over, there will be a couple of ushers uh, just outside the doors um, uh, to give to benevolence. And our benevolence fund goes to those in, in material poor, uh, poverty, uh, to those who have, um, who have needs. It's, it's kind of our way to embody Luke 16. We believe God cares deeply for the poor, and that how we treat the poor is a, a key indication of whether or not we've taken Jesus seriously um, in our lives. And so uh, if you came prepared to give in that way, uh, out those doors, there will be ushers with um, baskets ready to give, uh, ready to receive your benevolence offering um, as well. Um, So with that, if you're able, would you please uh, stand as we move into a week of uh, celebrating our our own freedoms in many ways. uh, Would you hear these words, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, May you live into his grace and peace this week. You are dismissed.